All right, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word, and we ask as we come to it now that you would not just merely instruct us, but also speak to us and draw near to us in this time together as we open the very living and active word of God. We thank you that as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. And that's what these five or six, seven verses have before us today is the living, always remaining, powerful word of God. Do your work in us and through us by your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're picking up the story here in chapter 15, halfway through. We've had a few month break, as Larry mentioned in his reading. And just a quick reminder of where we've been so far in the book of Exodus. We're about a little over a third of the way through, if that's any encouragement to you in the first half of the year. So we have watched and journeyed with the people of Israel as they have been struggling in captivity under Egyptian bondage for hundreds and hundreds of years. God raises up a deliverer, a mediator, a savior in Moses who goes to Pharaoh after a number of temptations of trying to get away from God's command and God's providence and God's will for his life. Nevertheless, makes his way to Pharaoh and pronounces judgment on Pharaoh and warns Pharaoh that if he does not repent and release the people of God, that he will be struck with plague after plague after plague. And that's exactly what happens as we've journeyed through these earlier chapters. Eventually relenting at the Passover where God kills all the Egyptian firstborn sons and spares the Israelites because of the blood of the lamb being sprinkled on the doorposts of their homes. And they are brought out. And they are brought to the Red Sea where they have to make a fearful passage. But they witness the direct and miraculous intervention of God. As the Egyptian army is on the horizon pursuing them, God parts the sea and allows the Israelites to pass through and then drowns the following Egyptian army in the waters. And they stand on the shore and they celebrate and they worship and they praise God. And that's where we left the story. And this morning we pick up where we left off by the start of the Israelites' journey from the Red Sea into the wilderness. God is going to lead them to Sinai, Mount Sinai, where he's going to give them his law. But before that, we've got about four, five, six chapters of wilderness wandering. And there is a lot that these chapters have to teach us because biblically and theologically, this is where we now live. Notice I said biblically and theologically, not geographically. We don't live here geographically. We don't live here historically. But we do live here biblically and theologically because the New Testament presents our time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ for God's people as a wilderness wandering. We have been rescued from our sin through the work of the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are anticipating the promised land. But in the midst and in the middle, before we get there, we got to go through the wilderness. And so there's a lot to learn as we journey through the wilderness over the course of these next several weeks. What is God's purpose for the wilderness? What is he doing? Why does he bring us through the wilderness? What is his goal? Well, Lig Duncan, professor and chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, comments on this passage by describing what God's purpose is in the wilderness. He says, One of God's purposes with Israel in the wilderness was to teach Israel to live by grace. 
Now, living by grace may sound like easy living, but living by grace means living in utter dependence upon the provision of God, and there is no place where it is more acute than when you're in the wilderness. God accentuates our need in order to accentuate our dependency in order to accentuate the provision of his grace. Trusting him and accepting his providence as wise and good, even when we can't sort it all out. So the Lord puts his people to the test in the wilderness to humble them and teach them to live by grace. And again and again, we will see it becomes apparent that the Israelites did not want to live by grace. They want to live by sight. They want to live by their lordship. They want to not live by faith. Not by God's lordship. And not in accordance with grace. So there's a tinge of bitterness and sadness as we journey with Israel through the wilderness. But it also reminds us that God is relentless in his commitment to pursue and give grace to his people. And we will find ourselves, much like the Israelites, having similar temptations to want to live by sight, to not want to walk by faith, to want to not live by grace, but actually to really deep down want to live by works. This morning, we're going to consider several redemptive realities. I got the title of that sermon later this week as I was thinking about kind of capturing the essence of what these verses teach us. And it, it basically paints for us the reality of redemption. Like, what, what is redemption really like? And what isn't it like? Because we can come up with different ideas in our head of what we think God's doing when he redeems us. But in fact, what we're going to see this morning is what is really going on when God redeems us. And following the kind of theme of the passage, we're going to consider six redemptive realities this morning. The first three are a little bit bitter, and the last three are really, really sweet. So we, that's one of the themes in the passage. We see God turning bitter circumstances into sweet circumstances, and that's the pattern we're going to follow this morning. So three redemptive realities that are bitter, those will be our first three, and three redemptive realities that are sweet. Those will be our last three, and we'll just march through the passage section by section. Number one, first redemptive reality. Redemption means God isn't done once you get saved. God isn't done once you get saved. Look at verse 22. Then Moses, said, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of sure. See, escaping from Egypt, brothers and sisters, was really only half the battle. Getting the people out of Egypt was the first half of Exodus. While the people had been delivered from outside of Egypt, Egypt had not yet been delivered from inside the Israelites. We saw that a little bit in Exodus 15, whereas right as they encounter the Red Sea struggle and they see the approaching Egyptian army, they panic and say, didn't you, did you just bring us out here to kill us? Can't we just go back to Egypt? Egypt had not been delivered from inside the Israelites. Brothers and sisters, the point of redemption is not just 
that we got out from under the old master, but that we learn to find delight in the new one. The two greatest threats to true biblical freedom do not come from external oppression, but from within. God knows that. God knew that about his people. Their greatest problem was not Egypt. Their greatest problem was their sinful heart that would depart from God. Delivering Israel from Egypt was easy, comparatively, than delivering Egypt from Israel, spiritually speaking. Delivering Israel from Egypt only took ten plagues. Delivering Israel from slavery to self, sin, sex, greed, and idolatry took ten commandments and ten separate trials and corresponding judgments, according to Numbers 14.22. And it ended up with them not learning and a whole generation dying in the wilderness. And even then, the problems persisted. True slavery is not external oppression, it's captivity of the soul, not just the body. Until a person is freed from that and free to become what God originally intended them to be, their exodus is incomplete. You know, some of us live the Christian life as if we get to Exodus 15, 21, which we concluded in our last text several months ago with Miriam and the tambourine. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Cue the credits. Sound the trumpets of heaven. Bring us on up to glory. It's all ends right there. Friends, that's the beginning. That is not the end. That's it. We're saved. We're delivered. We set free. Hallelujah. Let's sing. End of story. Heaven, here we come. The exodus is far from over. They've left Egypt and crossed through the Red Sea, and now we have the rest of the book. It's really instructive, if you think about it, for the Christian life, isn't it? Just those words. Then Moses made Israel set out. After we get saved, we don't just fold it up and say, wasn't that a great story? Redemption, happily ever after. Praise God, let's go on our way. No, you see in verse 22, Moses made Israel set out. Interesting choice of words. Made them. We don't know exactly why they were not wanting to go, but you can imagine it's a pretty sweet thing. Witnessing a miracle of redemption, singing, celebrating. Who wants to leave a good party? God does. Were they ready? Were they not? Did they say, oh Moses, this is such a great celebration. We want to stay here on the banks of the Red Sea. We want to sing and worship you. Isn't that fa in fact, isn't that why we're delivered? To worship God? Let's have Miriam and the women do some more tambourine. I really like that song. Let's do it again. This is the life. Moses says, time to go. Time to go. This service will end. Our time of worship will be over. God will say, time to go. Time to go. We're not done yet. This is not the end of the story. This is a pit stop. And now we're back out. If you know the rest of Exodus, you know that it wasn't ultimately Moses' decision. It wasn't Moses saying, all right, time to make you go. I don't like this. I mean, I hate that tambourine. Can we just stop it for a little while? 
mean, it's giving me a headache. Anybody got any Excedrin? None of that. I mean, it's clearly the Lord, the pillar of cloud, was moving. Remember, that was what was with them as they were going to journey through the wilderness. It was the Lord. We know from the end of the book of Exodus in Exodus 40 that the pillar of cloud and fire continued to lead them in all their journeys through the wilderness. So this is God saying, all right, time to go, time to head into the wilderness. God has saved most of you here. Maybe some of you are, are visitors, and we're thankful you're here. You're checking Christianity out. So, so glad you're here. But most of you are walking with Christ and are probably members of this church and believe in Jesus. God has saved you, but he is not done with you. He wants to shape you, change you, teach you, help you, refine you, and show what it really means to have him as your Savior and Lord. After salvation comes sanctification. This is God's pattern. After we're saved, we don't enter glory immediately. We will go into the wilderness, and you're going to face there difficulty, disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment, and doubt all along the way. It's part of the gig. Number one, God, redemption means that God isn't done once you get saved. Number two, redemption means life will not necessarily be easy. Redemption means that life will not necessarily be easy. Let's pick up the story in the middle of verse 22. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Cue the Owensboro tornado siren. Emergency is afoot. Verse 23, when they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. Now, this was a long march of about 40 miles between where Israel was and where they came to Mara, which was the next oasis. Now, 40 miles to us, not a big deal. That's a trip to Evansville in a car by yourself or with your family, not with hundreds of thousands of people, animal, cattles, and children, all moving through a desert on foot. For a large company of people driving animals, this would have been about a three-day journey. If you know anything about physical welfare, you know three days is about as long as you can go without some water. This is dangerous. They're on a three-day journey through the desert, and it's not an easy route. As the great company travels south, they would find nothing but long stretches of sand without water. No wells, no oases, no source of water for their flocks and herds. I mean, it's hard enough to travel one day in the wilderness by yourself, but they're traveling three days with a large group, and it's really hard to go that long without water. They must have thought many times, Man, I thought redemption was going to be better than this. I mean, this is in some ways harder than Egypt. Because at least Egypt, when we were building the, using, built, you know, using the bricks and all that stuff, at least we got a couple squares a day. Here, I don't think this God is going to even take care of us. He's not going to feed us. He's, we're going to die of thirst here in the, here in the desert. And then... They see an oasis on the horizon. And they turn to each other and say, Ah, oh, see, we were so foolish. We knew better. We, we saw the Red Sea, right, guys? I mean, we saw it. We saw what happened at the Red Sea. And, 
and then we saw all the plagues and what God did to Pharaoh. I mean, we see the pillar right there. I mean, he's leading us. The cloud is carrying us forward. God is with us. Look at that. There's the oasis. Let's go. And the kids take off, and the animals pick up a spring in their gallop, and, and then the, the men and women start running toward the oasis. Oh, praise God. Our God is so good. Our God is so good. He provides for us. And then they run to the bank of that oasis, and they bend down, and they take a drink, and it's brackish through and through. Completely undrinkable. They spit it out. They hack. They heave. Listen to them. You can hear them, right? They're hacking. They're heaving. They're already dying of thirst. And the water that they're supposed to be provided with that God provides them with is undrinkable. It was more than just distasteful. It was completely unfit for human consumption. They named it Mara, bitter, that oasis, not only because it reflected the condition of the water and also reflected the condition of their heart in those moments. Bitter toward God for what he's done. And redeeming them. We can sometimes think that when we get saved, things are just going to get better. Sorry to burst your bubble. They might not. At least not immediately. Now, for sure, I want to encourage you, for sure, when you get saved, all your biggest problems are solved. You're forgiven of your sins. You're adopted into God's family. You're justified. You're credited with the righteousness of Christ. And you're headed for heaven. But that doesn't mean you're not going to face hardship. And sometimes debilitating, irrational, and inexplicable hardship at the hand of God. There will be times we think that God has given us a raw deal. Redemption means life will not necessarily be easy. Don't buy the lie of the prosperity gospel, which you can denounce in your head but believe in your heart. We all would deny that the prosperity gospel is a real gospel, but oh, how entitled we are. And oh, how we think God owes us something more, don't we? That's a prosperity gospel heart. You can have a prosperity gospel head, or you can not have a prosperity gospel head and still have a prosperity gospel Redemption means life will not necessarily be easy. Number three, redemption means God will often require unsettling dependence on him. Redemption means God will often require unsettling dependence on him. I was tempted to put there irrational, but that's not the best word. Depending on God is never irrational. He is totally and absolutely trustworthy and has proven himself trustworthy in this book alone again and again and again, right? But unsettling, absolutely. Let's look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Legitimate question. Legitimate question. (laughs) Grumbling, Not okay, but the question, all right. Verse 25, and he cried to the Lord, that is Moses, and the Lord showed him a log. 
Now, two things in these couple of verses. First of all, the way not to respond when we are put in unsettling circumstances and the way to respond when we are put in unsettling circumstances. And I wish this didn't take us a lifetime to learn, but it takes me that long. It's still taking me this to this day. You know, when you get to the point where you're a Christian over half the amount of time that you've been alive, you know, some of you way past that. You know, you've been Christian 95% of your life, and you look back now, but, but when you start to get there, you start to reflect more, and you're like, I think I should have learned some of these lessons by now. I mean, I, I have been in Christ a long time, and yet we still have to learn these lessons. So the way not to respond is in verse 24, grumbling and blaming other people. This is what typically happens when unsettling circumstances come into our lives. The default, natural, flesh, no spirit, non-gospel, no redemptive mindset reaction is to grumble about it and look for a human to blame. Especially a leader. If you can get a leader because that's the real person that's responsible for my hardship. Pastor, president, some politician, parent, you know, boss, somebody. Grumbling is complaining from a heart that is angry with God. That's what grumbling is. Grumbling is complaining from a heart that is angry with God. Grumbling is blaming God for what you think is wrong with your life. Grumbling is experiencing something hard and concluding that God must be bad. When do we grumble? We grumble when we look at past provision, actually when we don't, when we don't look at past provision nor future promise and we acknowledge that those things don't have any bearing on present pain. See, we grumble when we divorce the past and the future from the present. All you can think about is I'm thirsty, I'm hacking, this is brackish, I'm struggling, it's unfit for consumption, complain and grumble. They, they've forgotten three days ago. Three days ago. That's when this event is taking place, between the Red Sea miracle and now. Or at least, maybe, but just, 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 just a few hours. 72 hours. Under very, very hard conditions, no doubt. But 72 hours. Forgotten all about that. Because pain has a way of causing our minds to go into, like, forgetful mode. We just can't, because we're so absorbed by what our human sensors are processing that we can't think clearly. And so we forget the past. We forget what, what, what God is doing. What, is God, what has God done? He has delivered them. What is God doing? He's going to deliver them. But yet, in the moment, we forget. They've forgotten everything that the Lord has ever done for them. And we do, too. We don't think of any of his future promises. We don't think any of his past provision. All we can think about is present pain. It's incredibly human, and we all do it. This is the depths of our sin. See, don't, don't, don't measure how sinful and wicked and evil you are by nature by all the external sins that our culture does. Measure the sinfulness of sin by this by grumbling because that's an American pastime 
way before baseball. And it's in our hearts too. And at the heart of grumbling is anger toward God. It is anger at the Almighty. It's anger. I mean, what can be worse than anger at God? And yet that's exactly what we do when we grumble. Now, what's so remarkable, really stunning about this is that in this moment that the people are most unhappy and most out of sorts and when they're venting at Moses and that it only takes place three days after God split the waters of the Red Sea miraculously, what's so remarkable about this episode is that while they complain, they live under the shadow of God's presence. A pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Brothers, our grumbling's worse. Sisters, our grumbling's worse. We don't have God above us. We have God in us. We have God in us. It's way, way more blameworthy. You said, if I had a cloud above me reminding me continually of God's presence, you have God's spirit in you reminding you continually of God's presence. What's so remarkable is that the kind of forgetfulness of God's mighty deeds, this kind of grumbling was characteristic of Pharaoh. The anti-God, anti-Christ figure of the whole story now seems to characterize God's own covenant people themselves. So that's how not to respond. But look at verse 25. This is how we should respond. You know, and, and admittedly, Moses and Israel get this right throughout the story, right? We've already seen in the early chapters of Exodus. We see Israel doing this in Exodus chapter 2. When they're being oppressed, what do they do? They cry to the Lord. They cry to the Lord. So it's not like Moses is always right, Israel is always wrong. No, they're both completely messed up and sometimes they get it right. And here, sometimes leaders get so overwhelmed that they just have to cry out to God. And this is exactly what's happening. Moses can't fix this. There's no, there's no magic trick he can do to make this water drinkable. He cries out to God, which is exactly the thing he should do. It's what we should do. We should cry to the Lord. I want you to notice the difference. In, in verse 24, Israel grumbles. In verse 25, Moses groans. Grumbling is displeasing to God. Groaning is very pleasing to God. What's the difference? Well, while we shouldn't grumble, it is okay to groan. The Bible is full of groaning. Romans chapter 8 acknowledges that we groan inwardly, waiting for the redemption. We just groan. We just, oh, Lord. And that's a very, very common experience for God's people. What's the difference between a groan and a grumble? A groan says to God, this is really hard. A grumble says to God, you are really hard. A groan says, God, I would like something different. A grumble says, God, I wish you were someone different. There are lots and lots of groans in the Bible. There are lots and lots of grumbles too. The grumbles are sins. The, grum the groans aren't. Moses doesn't grumble, he groans. He cries out to the Lord. Friends, 
God tests his people to see if they will look to him in times of need. That's exactly what we see here. Phil Riken says, All our problems are meant to teach us to depend on God alone, to have absolute confidence in his faithfulness. Boy, easier said than done. Those are the first three. That's the bitter part. Now we're going to go sweet. We've seen that redemption means that God isn't done once you get saved, that redemption means life will not necessarily be easy, and redemption means God will often require unsettling dependence on him. Number four, redemption means that God cares and will provide for you. Look at verse 25 again. Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Isn't our God kind? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he provide? Yes, he does. When Moses cried, God provided. Our grumbling accomplishes nothing, but our prayers accomplish much. Israel's grumbling grieved the heart of God. Moses' prayer moved the hand of God. Your choice, my choice. I can grieve the heart of God or move the hand of God. I, I would rather move the hand of God. So we must cry to the Lord instead of grumble about him. Moses' prayer led him to see a log which he threw into the water and the water becomes sweet. Now the test, text doesn't say that there was something intrinsically powerful about the tree. This log was a magic log. No, what made the water sweet was that it was God's tree. It was God's choice. It was God's activity. God could have used Moses' finger if he wanted to. Moses, go put your finger in it. And then Moses would have said, when my finger did that, it was God working through me that did that. But have you ever seen and observed in the Bible the life-giving power of the tree? That God is often pleased in the Bible to display his life-giving power through a tree. Think about the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we read of the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden. Now, I don't want to press this analogy too far, okay? This is a little bit of biblical imagination, so allow me some lenience here. I'm not saying that this exactly is meant to point directly to the Garden of Eden. It's just an analogy. It's just a little bit of a type. But we also see at the end of the Bible, just as we saw at the beginning of the Bible, the tree of life in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22.2. So obviously God wants us to get something about this tree of life thing. If God puts it at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible, chances are it's going to show up in the middle of the Bible. It's going to be a carrying theme that God carries throughout the story of redemption. If he wants us to pay attention to something at the beginning and then he reinforces it at the end, chances are any good playwright, scriptwriter would know this, storyteller, you need to drop some clues along the way that this is, this is an important theme. And I think what this is teaching is that God is bringing healing and life through a tree. And this doesn't have to require too much imagination to point us to the ultimate tree of life, which is the tree on which our Lord was crucified, which heals us of our bitter, bitter sin. 
And so, brothers and sisters, it reminds us that when we are in the midst of unsettling difficulty, look to the tree. Look to the tree. Look to the cross. There we are reminded that while we may not understand why God brought us into this difficulty, we do know it, can't be, it cannot be because he does not love us. That's the one thing we can absolutely rule out in all of our difficulties because the cross says otherwise. The cross has already settled the debate of whether God loves us once and for all. It is finished. In other words, I love you. We must train our eyes never to wander from the cross, which is oh so difficult in times of difficulty. Because if we allow our eyes to drift from the cross, today's troubles will overwhelm us. But God reminds us in Romans 8, He who gave his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You think he will withhold mercy from today's trials? No. You think he will withhold grace to sustain you in today's troubles if he has already gone so far as to give his own son on the tree for you? No way. And when does God do this miracle? When Israel is grumbling. See, don't let your heart and your grumbling and your difficulty drive you away from God. It's at those moments that God is showering you with infinitely gracious mercy. God is so sweet and his mercy is so great that he delights to shower us in grace when we are at our most, most unlikable and most unlovable. One of the signs, in fact, of a growing spiritual maturity is our ability to trust that God will provide even when it's hard to see how. That's a mark of spiritual maturity. I don't know how God's going to provide, but I know he will. I don't assume to know the way in which he provides, but I do assume that he will. We have to learn this over and over and over because God cares for us and he will provide for us. May God help us to get to the place where we no longer question if he will provide, but instead wonder how he will provide and take care of us, waiting and trusting in humble reliance until he does. Number five, Redemption means that obedience is required and there is grace when we fail. Redemption means that obedience is required and there is grace when we fail. Let's pick up at the second half of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. So God has just delivered the people of Israel. He's brought them into Mar to the wilderness. They've landed at Marah for a pit stop. God's performed a miracle, making the water sweet. Then he says something making an object lesson. This is what I want you to learn from this. You just failed. You just blew it, Israel. I just led you out. It's like, it's like we're, we're learning how to form a line, kindergartners. This is Israel, a very immature. They're babies in grace and faith. And he brings them out, and they didn't form a line. They got in a circle. I just told you, we're going to go out here, we're going to trust God, we're going to trust him, and then he's going to provide for us. No, he's not. No, he's not. He hates us. God provides, and now he's got an object lesson for him. Therefore, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, 
If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. He calls them into the classroom and he says, Israel, welcome to Wilderness University. You are enrolled in the classes. All the classes are hard. Some of them are impossible. There will be a ton of tests. But what we learn here is that testing for God's people is the normal way in which God will operate in their lives. He's going to test them. He's going to test whether they listen to him. He's going to test whether they do what is right in his eyes. They're, he's going to test them whether they give ear to his commandments. He's going to test them where they, whether they keep all of his statutes. And then if they do that, he says, I'm going to put none of the plagues on you that I put on Egypt. But what's the flip side? If you fail the test, you're going to receive discipline like Pharaoh did. We learn in James chapter 1 and 1 Peter 1 that we ourselves are going to go through a lot of trials as God's people. Acts 14.22 reminds us that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And according to 1 Corinthians 10, we are called to learn from their example. 1 Corinthians 10. Let's go there for a second since we haven't hopped out of Exodus 15 yet. This is the only passage we're going to turn to. 1 Corinthians 10, the main New Testament passage about what we are to learn from the Exodus as Christians. What we're to learn from the Exodus as Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll just read a few verses. Verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, that is the Israelites, God was not pleased, and for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We're going to get to that story in a few weeks. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble. That's our text this morning. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, even though this is referring to a different incident. They continue to grumble for the next couple chapters. We're going to get more to that. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's an application for us from this sermon this morning. You think this can't happen to you? Be careful. It can happen to me. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, including grumbling. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know, many of us have memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13 for years. This is a new category we need to put on that verse, this incident, because this is some of the things that Paul is talking about to us as, as the church. We are enrolled in Wilderness University, and there will be many tests. 
And uh, I have good news for you, but first I have some bad news. Just like Israel, you're going to fail Wilderness University in your own strength. We already have. That's the thing. We already have. We failed. But here's the good news. Someone else is taking the class for you. When you get to Matthew chapter 1, you begin to read a genealogy about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is fulfilled as the Messiah of Israel. And then in chapter 2, he escapes Egypt. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. He doesn't. And then he moves. Where does he go from there? Goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what happens while he's there? He wins. He passes the test. See, he is doing that because they didn't and we didn't. Because we failed Wilderness University. He enrolled and passed for us. And then what does he do right after that? He goes, well, before, remember, before he goes into the wilderness, he's baptized, symbolizing the Red Sea, the parting of the, going through the Red Sea. And then on the other side, he's in the wilderness, and he passes it. And then in Matthew chapter 5, he goes up to the mountain. Matthew 4 is Exodus 13 through 19, relived in the life of Jesus as our Savior. It's not just about how you can overcome temptation too because Jesus did. Just quote the word of God and you'll be all right. That's not the main point. That is a point. That is a application. But the main point is Christ won. Christ won for us. There is grace now for when we fail because we are in union with the one who succeeded. So while, yes, God takes obedience seriously after redemption, you don't get redeemed and then go live however you want to live. That's clear here. You must listen to God. You must do what God says. You do what's right in his eyes. You give ears to his commandments. You keep all his statutes. That's your heart. But we fail. But there is one who has saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ. So while obedience is required, there is grace when we fail. One more and final point. Number six, redemption means life will be sprinkled with God's kindness all along the way. Redemption means that God will be sprinkled, life will be sprinkled with God's kindness all along the way. Look at verse 27. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. I mentioned in our last point that while we are all enrolled in Wilderness University, that the classes will be hard. But listen, the professor is amazingly gracious, and you'll get lots of bathroom breaks along the way. That's what we see here, right? Sometimes we can be tempted to think that the Christian life is just one big slog. No fun, no joy, all hard work, all trial. No. God gives us many, many oases along the way. In fact, I would say daily. There are seasons for sure. It's a barren wilderness. And you're just crying out, God, give me something. Some sign of encouragement, some sign of good. But all the while, if we have our eyes fixed rightly on the cross, reflecting on God's past provision, hoping in God's future promises, there is much water to drink along the way. 
Elim reminds us that the Christian life is not entirely a desert journey. Elim was an oasis along the way. And while we are not yet in the promised land, God does, does give us many foretastes. One of them is tonight, the Lord's Supper. It's an oasis in the desert. It points us back to God's past provision. It points us forward to God's future hope so that we can endure our present pain. Come. Come to Elim tonight. Don't die of thirst this week. Don't be parched. Come drink from Christ. And notice something. Notice the details that Moses gives. They came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. The numbers 12 and 70 are typically symbolic in that they are very often point to, the full, to, to, to fullness in the Hebrew, Hebrew literature. 70, remember when Jesus, Jesus called 12 disciples and he sent out the 70? That's not by mistake. That's patterned after Israel. The 12 tribes and the 70 leaders. Even if we don't spiritualize them, it's striking that there is a spring for every tribe and there's a tree for every elder. Isn't that sweet of God? He doesn't just say, lead you to the trough and say, okay, line up. Uh, we might have enough for everybody. We'll see what happens. No, he specially prepares because he knows you. He knows all the tribes and what they need. He's paying attention to every single one of them. He doesn't just relate to Israel as a corporate mass. He relates to them as 12 tribes and 70 elders. He knows he's got them numbered. As Jesus said, the very hairs of our head are all numbered. Same here. It seems to suggest that God will ensure that there will be fullness of provision for us as his people along the way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity this morning to reflect on these redemptive realities. We acknowledge our own sin before you and we thank you that when life is bitter, you give us such sweetness. When we are struggling, when we are recognizing that you're not done with us yet, that there things are going to be hard and that you will often require unsettling dependence. Nevertheless, you care for us, you provide for us, you give us grace, and you show your kindness moment by moment all along the way. Thank you for being this God for us. Thank you for being a God who is indulgent toward us, who is over and above even what we need. And thank you for your personal care for each of your children. Thank you that you know our names. Thank you that you know our struggles. May we carry them to you and may you meet our needs. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the life, the one who brought us ultimate life and healing through his work on the cross and resurrection. Lord Jesus, we rise to worship you to the glory of God the Father by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.